Welcome to the New Future Podcast, where we talk to business leaders, researchers, and visionary thinkers about what happens next. I'm Kate rain And I'm Kate Rezivina. On this week's episode, we're talking to Dr. Gordon Neufeld. He is a clinical psychologist and international authority on child development based in Vancouver, Canada, and has spent much of his professional life creating coherent theories for understanding child development. Gordon has authored, with the help of his colleague Gabor Mate, the bestseller, Hold On To Your Kids. This book is now published in over 25 languages and is about the pivotal importance of children's relationships to those responsible for them and the devastating impact in today's society of competing attachment with children's peers. Gordon is internationally recognized for his work on aggression and violence among children and youth and appears regularly on radio and television. Gordon, welcome to the new future. Thank you. Pleased to be here. (laughs) So... My background as a game designer, um, mean, for me, curiosity and play are, are two of my things. Um, I also use Lego Serious Play as a methodology for getting adults and organizations to be more innovative and creative. So I'm really interested in that connection between um, the lack of play and major problems um, in your work. So can you talk a bit about why you think play, and based on your research, why play, especially for adults, is even more important? as we move into this new future? Uh, as, as you probably know, uh, being in the uh, play field, um, the, the original uh, thinking around play, the original study of play was by the ancient Greeks. And it, it was actually the first uh, subject of philosophy. Uh, it was that important as they brought play right to right uh, to the fore immediately. They considered it absolutely um, pivotal, necessary uh, to make humans uh, fully human and humane. It was part of the realization of potential. Plato uh, saw it as uh, being the frame in which we take a leap ahead, which we get ahead of ourselves. That is the, the, the forward place of all development. But interesting enough, almost all of, of the work, all of the study on play was with adults, not children. Uh, and it did not have to do with physical playgrounds. Uh, certainly the Olympics have, have come through when we think of this as sports and games and so on, but that wasn't what they were talking about. Uh, the word play was reserved actually for drama, for theater. And it was an emotional playground. And so it uh, had to do with the emotions could come out to play. They didn't really count for real. And so on. It, it, it was actually the place of, of that uh, we could feel what, uh, how we were moved one step away from reality. And so the tragedy... Uh, dealing with the futilities we encounter in life, one step removed, and the comedy, being able to laugh at our rulers so we didn't kill them. Uh, these were the the two huge functions of play. So play, uh, 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 we have to, play has become reductionistic. Play has become about children. Play has become about games. Play has become about toys. And we have to start at a completely different place if we're really going to, uh, going to understand this, is that uh, now that we understand that emotions are meant to take care of us, they have a purpose, uh, now we're beginning to understand that the primary purpose of play is to take care of our emotions. So 
play takes care of our emotions. It's where our emotions can, can come out to play without repercussions for attachment, without feelings getting hurt. One step removed from reality uh, in a completely engaging activity that uh, that is not achievement based or attachment based, and um, and where the will is preserved. So it's huge. It's huge. But it is, and it's at right at the core of emotional health and well-being. But we, we have to understand it as adults and why it is so important for us, and especially now uh, when our, our emotions are frayed, when especially now when we're in the work mode having to solve all these kinds of problems of why play is the antidote is so important uh, uh, for, for adults. And if we can understand it for adults, we'll be much more likely to discover the kind of play uh, that helps children uh, and their emotions as well. Yes, and I, I think it's kind of a worldwide thing, but I find it especially in Australia and especially in Western Australia where we're a bit more conservative. Um, but there's, it's kind of like play is a bad word. And it's mm, like a waste of really? time. Yeah. And so I'll have. Oh, yes. It's frivolous. <laughs> yes. It's, 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 yes. 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 I don't. It, maybe it's a, a bad word among among achievement oriented adults. I can yes. see that. Yes. It's frivolous. You only do it when your work is done. And, uh, you know, and, uh, of, of course, we think of males in their games or sports yes, vehicles and so on. You know, is that they've never yeah. grown up because, you know, they have their man toys and so on. <laughs> And, uh, and all of these things. And, and that's where we have to rehabilitate the construct of play. Because you know? play is so absolutely important. Uh, and so we have to understand what is true play. And there's books written about this. Of, you know, play can't be defined. And that is very interesting. As they try to do that, the operational definition of play is purposeless activity, except then they, then they discovered that play has huge purpose. And so that kind of got thrown by the wayside, but that's still how they study play in, in, uh, in other species, it is when they don't know the purpose. As soon as you know the purpose, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the, the, uh, you, you define play, true play, basically, because there's all kind of false play, around uh, seven distinct properties. It's ultimately engaging. That's, that's play's middle name. Not necessarily fun, and that was a mistake. It's ultimately engaging. But the engaging is in the activity, not the outcome. Work is defined by working towards an outcome when the activity may be a little bit undesirable. Uh, but in play, you play for play's sake. Uh, and so two children can play a board game or play sports. Or we, you know, as kids, we played marbles. And we had two games of marbles. It was called funsies and keepsies. And the keepsies, uh, you either won marbles or lost marbles. So that was work. That was outcome-based. And funsies, you've got all your marbles back at the end of the game. That was play-based. And so you can have a child who plays a board game just for the sheer activity uh, of fun and engagement of the activity, and another one who only plays if they have, have a chance of winning. And so we have to be very, very careful when we use the word, the kind of play that is, that is important for emotion is, is not outcome-based. Uh, it is one step removed from reality. It doesn't count for real. Uh, it is safe for feelings, not necessarily physically. 
it's safe for feelings. Feelings don't get hurt. The will is preserved, and it is in uh, in very clear parameters uh, that distinguish it from everyday activity. And so when a dog goes to play, they'll make a play signal with another dog. All the animals have play signals that enter, go out, often a little bit of silliness for humans, for a child, will say, I'm in a play mode or putting on a bit of dress. There, there has to be a signal of a beginning and end to differentiate it. Otherwise, play doesn't serve its purpose, and it can be used as an escape from reality, which is one of the dark sides of play. Uh, so many people use it or think that they're doing it as an escape from reality. Oh, the other distinctive that I forgot to mention is it's expressive. And so it is not about entertainment. It's not stimulating. It is a place for the emotions to be expressed without repercussion. So it comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. So those are the seven properties of the kind of play that is important for emotional health and well-being. The kind of play that is the kind of play that that uh, Plato and Socrates, it's so funny that Plato, with a name like Plato, would be the first play theorist, but it was true. Plato was the first play theorist, and, uh, and so, but the kind of play that is good for the soul that is uh, good for emotional health and well-being is is that kind of play and that's quite different most sports are played for outcomes we have ruined sports for uh, you know uh, all kinds of things many video games are outcome based they are not in the enjoyment of the activity and so we have to be careful here about uh, about preserving the true nature of play mm. yes i i um I love the, the video games that are more play-based, like The Sims, like your sandbox games that are about just playing mm. rather than the outcomes. Um, but yes, I, 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 and I think this is a nice kind of segue into the next question, which is kind of the flip side of this, which is uh, your work talking to some of, or researching some of the worst murderers and psychopaths in Canada and looking at, at evil and the nature of evil and the connection between that and the lack of play. So it's kind of, you know, the... We get all these great benefits from it, but if you are don't have play at all, um, can you speak more to to the implications of that and why yes. it's so important the, to look at the worst case scenario? The uh, the putting the pieces together with regards to the play is not my work actually. It's okay. it's uh, some of the leading uh, play scientists now in in uh, in the states in the United States, and they have done some work uh, uh, around. Uh, um, those that are the perpetrators of the of the school shootings and atrocities and serial murders and so on, and they found a remarkable thing. In fact, they have over six thousand case studies of of uh, I individuals who uh, have it in in some way committed some serious crime and so on, and they found that they were remarkably devoid of this kind of true play as as children. So that's one part. My own putting the pieces together. I, uh, when I was working with very very violent youth and uh, and violent adults, and that work uh, was putting the pieces together and discovering something else, but it's related. And it was discovering the fact that that um, they were devoid of feelings, and they could not uh, they could not feel their emotions, their tender emotions. Uh, I had two serial killers who, out of a normal kind of uh, list of, of 100 feelings, could only identify with two of them. Mm. 
And so it was just remarkable. On the average, about 80% less capable of feeling. And, and so from this, and very much from my work with these individuals, it, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, one is not born evil. It doesn't make any sense to me that anybody is born evil. We all come into this world with the potential to become fully human and humane, but it is our feelings that are responsible for the unfolding of our potential. Our emotional maturation, our empathy, it's our feelings, it's our heart that is responsible. And when children lose their feelings in early life, it takes a dreadful toll. Uh, and the good news is that feelings can always be restored. I, I work with some of the most hardened criminals and feelings can be restored. And when the feelings restored, oh my goodness, they get their heart back again and, and their sensitivity and their caring and their sadness and all those things. The bad news is that feelings cannot be restored against our will. And so when we align our will with the flight from feeling, certainly evil can result, uh, but we're not born that way. And it really is an issue of, of feelings. And when a very intelligent person, a very bright person loses their feelings and is responsible, is, is in a place of huge responsibility, you know, uh, uh, the head of a country or whatever it is, uh, great tragedy can come from this. Uh, so it is, it is a matter of feeling. Mm, it is a think, matter of feeling. And that connects back to what you were saying about the importance of, of play for Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, that is the number one discovery of this and why, uh, why um, play may be the active ingredient in therapy when it works is that in play, play is a sanctuary for feeling our emotions because play is safe, because it's expressive, because it is engaging, because it is one step removed, it's not for real and it's not outcome based and it is in a bubble of reality. It is a perfect sanctuary for feelings to return. And that is why it's so important during this pandemic. Uh, my wife and I have a, have a weekly ritual now on, on uh, Sundays where we, um, while we're, we're putting a, a jigsaw puzzle together, usually a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, we're listening to music and allowing it to bring us to our sadness and our feelings mm -hmm. come back because we need that time for feelings to be restored. But it, that is the issue. And, mm -hmm. and the emotional playgrounds, whether you're a poet, whether you're a storyteller, or, or whether you view stories, uh, wh whatever you are, a, a painter, a sculptor, a dancer, uh, you know, whether it's music, these emotional playgrounds are absolutely core to our emotional health and well-being, and they couldn't be more important than now. Mm. And that's actually so interesting because it helps me to actually understand what I see that's a kind of flow on effect when I'm using my Lego serious play methodology with adults is it's getting uh, them to be in a play space where we'll be using it as a tool to, uh, you know, think about different problems in the organization or be more creative and innovative. 
But the result I always get after it is people will say, well, I've just felt like I've had a therapy session, <laughs> which isn't like one of the, you know, official. Yes, benefits but, of it, but, but, the, <laughs> but the point is, you see, is the therapy is in the play, exactly. not the therapist. And yes. that's the point. We're not talking about play therapy here. We're talking about the therapy of play. Yes. And that's completely <laughs> different. And play is meant to do its work. And again, if you put the whole picture together, we find out that emotion has purpose after all. It's not, it, it may be irrational, but the brain has its reasons. And so it, it has purpose, but there's a problem of what takes care of our emotions. And play turns out to be uh, uh, the, um, the only form of activated rest that's available to us. Mm-hmm. Now, all good things come from rest. And and recovery comes from rest. Children grow when they're asleep. All good things come from rest. We now know that. The brain waves of, in the brain of, way, uh, of rest, the uh, parasympathetic nervous system. So that's well documented is that we don't get better from working at it. We actually get better. We it, it is indirect. It is rest that that we need. Uh, however, however, at night, the emotions do not rest. They're in charge of our dreams. They're in charge of our memory encoding. So when are emotions to rest? When do they not have to go to work? They don't have to go to work on an emotional playground. As soon as we're playful, it occurs to our brain that emotions do not have to work. And so now we can feel them more. A feeling is actually the feedback of how emotion affects us. And so the sensory gating system in the back of the brain opens up to these feelings that you know are interpreted, which is exactly what it is that we need to, to happen. So it is, and you, you can't make somebody playful. You, you can't, no matter how much you can try. You can make it easy for them. You can help them with an activity, but you can't actually make them. But when we find that that playfulness, and again, I'm speaking to the emotional playgrounds. Most people don't think of this as, as emotional. You know, the, this is play. But when you go to this, when you, you know, whether it's word play and in reading poetry, you find your feelings coming back. When you're reading a story, you find your feelings coming back. This is, this is absolutely critical for us to become fully human and humane. And there's a whole science around this now, which is uh, amazing. But we had to have a number of things come together uh, to understand uh, that feelings were different than emotion. One needs to feel one's emotion, which is different than emotion itself. And that play, true play, had these distinct properties, and so that you can study it more specifically. Gordon, and, uh, just to uh, change the gears a bit, <laughs> it was wonderful to hear that um, there is um, some hope uh, for um, those incredibly violent, I guess, criminals. But it kind of leads us to the next question. Uh, right now, uh, we're having um, a lot of discussions um, uh, around tackling domestic violence here in Australia, um, especially now that coronavirus has made this issue even more pressing. Um, people are locked in, locked at home. Um, so it obviously creates issues. So, and there's, there has been so many initiatives, um, all these organizations trying to do the right thing and helping the victims and so on. But um, despite all these new initiatives, uh, the situation seems to be getting worse. And 
sounds like it's a global issue at the moment. Yes, it is so, a global issue. Yeah, it is a global issue everywhere. And I guess the question is, what are we doing wrong with these initiatives? Are we targeting the wrong population here? Like, is it too late to change the adults, um, the adult men, for example? Or should we be targeting children instead? Well, the problem is very systemic. Uh, it's, it's very deep in our society. Of, of course, when we're crowded together, uh, we get more frustrated. We, we get more stressed out. Uh, we all long for togetherness. Togetherness is our ultimate answer. But when, when uh, and we get frustrated with the people we love the most uh, because we're most dependent upon them. We trip all over them. And uh, uh, but the problem here again is, if we can go back to the theme, is is that uh, when um, uh, when we have attacking impulses, when we have instincts to put down, uh, to discount, to belittle, uh, when that frustration upchucks in in eruptions of, of foul attacking energy, it's because we have not felt enough. It isn't because we don't have values. I I've heard plenty of parents say, I wish I did not hit my child. I don't want to hit my child. So it's not an issue of values. Uh, it, it is an issue of feeling. You, you've, we got to feel, as a society, we're not feeling friendly. Uh, we're not at all. We, we're still focusing, even in our emotional literacy programs in school, uh, we're telling children to calm down, don't be upset. It's all about managing emotion, all about self-regulation. There's nothing, no message that all feelings are invited. They're all okay. So we have a basic problem in our society ever since John Locke. And he thought that the problem with women and children is that they felt too much, that they were too emotional. We are still back in this world of thinking that feelings are the problem and not the answer. And it, it's, it's when and, and still, we bring up boys thinking that they're too emotional, they have too many feelings, and so on. It's not about values, it's not about empathy, it's not about teaching respect. It is about, it, it is about getting back to the basic uh, message that feelings are not only okay, they are our salvation. They are what make us fully human and humane. And so we're not reaching deep enough. The problem is not a value problem or behavior problem. The problem, in a nutshell, is is uh, is that uh, that feeling. And and when the heart soften, then we find our caring. We find our mixed feelings. We remember that when we have hits in us, that we also have hugs in us as as well. And that makes us more civilized around those uh, those. Uh, uh, that uh, that we're attached to, that we love, that we're responsible for. And we find our sadness. And sadness is the most important issue of adaptation. Like feelings do all the work. And sadness is responsible for helping us to let go of what didn't work, couldn't work, and so on, and prepare for a new way to adapt to circumstances. So, so the fact is, is, is aggression, any aggression, any attacking, any violence, any abuse, any aggression, whether it's attacking somebody's dignity and so on, is an indicator very, very simply uh, 
and I worked with institutions full of these individuals, is an indicator that there has not been sufficient sadness for the futility that that person has encountered. It's a direct indicator. So the issue is one of hearts. Those with soft hearts who can feel conflicted, who can feel their love and their frustration at the same time, that these are not the ones who are uh, who are erupting in foul frustration. Aggression is an indicator of a lack of adaptation. And is it going to grow during this time? Uh, well, the, the, the just domestic violence alone, 30% has been bandied about that, that rate in, in all kinds of countries. And I fear it's a lot more than that. But it is, it, uh, it is indicating, is, is it a male problem? It is a male problem in the sense that we're, we're called sissies if we feel. Uh, if we have sadness, if we have tears, we're considered to be you know, uh, too, too female-ish. And oh my goodness, that ought to be a compliment by this, that, by this time for a male. If they're, you know, if they're seeing more of this, this is what's right about women. This is what's right about children. It's just easier for them to have their sadness and their tears for them to feel. The worst thing was, would be to try to become like us. You know, the worst thing would be is, is to not to do this. But this is the key. And, and it goes right from uh, the child rearing, right from the start of knowing that feelings are important. Sadness has a place. And if, if, uh, if children don't feel, they'll lose their caring. They'll lose their, their sadness. They'll lose, they won't feel conflicted. Um, and uh, and that, will, that takes a huge toll, uh, a huge toll. So it is, it is an issue, not of values, not a behavior. Uh, these are symptomatic. Uh, it, it is an issue of feeling. And uh, yeah, I have seen some discussions around uh, introducing like education programs at school about the importance of empathy or respect. Um, like, what's your view on this? It sounds like it should be more about encouraging the feelings rather than some education. Well, it, it's barking up the wrong tree. Emotional literacy is all around uh, uh, all around the uh, social emotional learning. It's it's about the learning paradigm. The learning paradigm has always been antagonistic. That is what John Locke started, is the idea that consequence, that behavior is shaped by consequences. So it's all about self-regulation. It's all about controlling yourself. The words you hear are calm down, don't be upset, that's the red zone, get into the green zone, feeling is still the enemy. And you divide all the feelings between, you know, negative and positive feelings. Is, and if you think right, you'll feel right. These are antagonistic. No matter if they have emotion in the name of those programs, they are not feeling friendly by any means. This isn't saying it is okay to be upset. It is okay to feel. It is okay to, to be sad. It is okay to experience this. It's, it's, we are humans. It's okay to feel. That's a completely different message, and that's not done through a program. You don't do that through a program. Uh, the problem is in prison, we had to stop all empathy programs because first of all, there's some basic flaws in empathy training programs. One is there's eight definitions of empathy in, in the research, operational definitions, and not one of them has caring at the heart. Uh, 
And if you take caring out of the definitions of empathy, it turns out to be like being able to skillfully read another person's emotions. Now, being able to skillfully read another person's emotions is what a psychopath does. <laughs> Wow. And so in 2013, there was a spate of studies that came out, and they still haven't uh, you know, gone down. But a spate of studies came out, first of all from England, that demonstrated that bullies have lots of empathy when it's defined as being able to read another's emotions. And if you, if you give them skill-based programs and you know, being sensitivity-based programs, it's going to backfire when uh, with the ones that either already have lost their caring and their feelings of responsibility and so on. So they already have lost their feelings. But the problem is, is we bring these programs into, into the uh, uh, elementary, the primary grades. Is that what you call them in Australia too? The grades one, yeah. two, and three? Yeah. Okay. And then in the intermediate grades, we know that it's that school gets to be very, very hard because kids become peer oriented. And one of the, the things that happens because they, they get more wounded uh, in interaction with peers than anybody else is the and what happens when you're wounded is the inhibition of feelings is they start losing their tender feelings. And so what they have brought with them, the new skills and sensitivity is like sending them uh, to training school you know for when they're a bully and so it all backfires in the end so no is it the way we should go to oh, it's well meant and but it, it doesn't get to the root of the problem and it is still not feeling friendly it is still barking up the old and I'm gonna say here male thing about oh my goodness don't feel don't feel don't feel let's numb out let's drug out let's do something for whatever don't feel get a hold of yourself self-control we still don't have to we still don't have to figure it out why are women doing so much better in all of the diagnosis or almost all of them than men why do they why do they suffer this because they can feel so let's go to where the issue is and it would make a huge difference. <laughs> I think, it, I, sorry, Kate, go ahead. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It sounds like we need to change the whole society then. <laughs> well, it, it is a systemic much. root issue. It is a systemic for 400 years. We've been barking up the wrong tree. It's a systemic issue. Because I was going to add to that too. I think it's really interesting about that women are better at feeling feelings, but even as a woman, I've, uh, I think being in a very male society is even for us, and I know Kate and I have talked about this, is it's, I've had to work to feel my feelings because I'm, you know, my, I shove them down and, <laughs> as a woman, right? So it's like, even women are, are I, it's, a, it's a wrong, it's a wrong way to go for yeah, equality. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's a wrong way to go it, you know. But I think it's like, just like, everybody's told yeah. to do that. It's like, we're an anti-feeling society, an anti-play yeah. society. And it's like, not okay for anybody. Yeah. Um, and we just shove no. it down. And it's like, the more that I've been feeling to your point, um, yeah. it, it, feels a lot better <laughs> that's right no if it's it's you know the equality should be women for equal opportunity and equal pay for men it should be to find our hearts <laughs> to be as to to be able to find our sadness and our caring you know why are women known as those who care because when you feel attachment 
Caring is what attachment is all about. You care about, you care for. And it's what is about. So they are in all the caring professions. And uh, hope there's good reason, but it isn't. It, it doesn't have to be gender biased because if we can find our hearts, uh, you know, we, we can be equal, uh, yeah. but we'll have to find our feelings. I think we all need to feel more is the point. Yeah. Men, maybe men yeah. more than women, but I think women, we can feel a lot more too. And I think the exactly. world would be a lot better place. Um, I guess we we also um, did want to talk about um, probably school bullies as well. Um, Gordon, what's your view on school bullies? Um, do you have a theory on how how oh, they're actually made? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we we have two basic attachment instincts. Uh, one is to take care of, uh, to be taken care of, uh, to be taken care of, and to take care of. In all of the animal world, they are the alpha and the dependent. To take charge, to be responsible, or to lean on and depend on. These are the two basic attachment instincts. The reason for this is, is because all mammals, they don't have survival instincts. As some people still think they do, but they don't have survival instincts. That was a great discovery of attachment theory is is that for mammals we get stuck on each other we have this quest for togetherness because survival lies in togetherness because when we attach and we feel our attachment we take care of each other now what happens uh, what what happens when you've got somebody where it's not safe to depend and so they are backed into the alpha mode by default to be in charge, to be on top, to be dominant, to have to be the most important. However, they do not feel their feelings of, of caring or responsibility. Suddenly, you've got the making of the bully response. And you can see it already there at two years of age. Again, it's a matter of feeling. If, if, uh, and, and it's, it's not a, we talk about it, it's a bully. No, it's a bully response. And it's the opposite of the alpha caring response. What the bully does is assert his, or the bully response is to assert dominance through taking advantage of the weak and through exploiting the vulnerable. The opposite of what we should be doing. When we see the weak and the vulnerable, we should automatically move to take care of. But that is the appropriate response. And so it's a perversion of the natural instinct, uh, the alpha instinct, which is meant to take care of, but it depends upon feelings of caring and responsibility. And so when you, when you see in someone you know, this, this full of these displacement instincts to be the top, to be, have the last word, to always be in control and all of this. And when they start saying, I don't care, doesn't matter. When they start, when they no longer say, I'm sorry, they have no feelings of responsibility. You have the birth of the bully response. Now, a bully is just somebody who's stuck. The bully response is characteristic uh, in them in, in certain ways. But that's the bully response. So it's the same thing. If uh, to the unmaking of the bully, 
the same thing as you embed them in cascading care, in attachments where they can feel cared for, and in the context of relationship and, uh, and when they get their feelings back, emotional playgrounds again. And this is what studies have found uh, with, with delinquents. You put them into theater programs and music, they begin to feel they lose the bully response. You don't have a bully with a soft heart. And so it, is, it, it goes back to the very, very same thing. You, you can, you, you know, all the stop bullying programs in the world won't stop bullying. All the values, all the laws that are passed will not stop. The bully was made because of a loss of feeling. The bully is unmade by restoring those feelings. It's incredibly simple at its essence, not necessarily easy to execute in any given situation, but the problem itself is a, a simple but devastating, you know, with devastating effects. It's, just, it's, it's an issue of feeling. Absolutely. Um, so um, I guess uh, if we, maybe move on to the topic of this education and school. Um, I guess we all want to know in this new future, in an ideal world, what, what would education look like for our children? Um, I myself, um, I'll tell my story, I was a big fan of the Montessori method. Um, I've read a lot of books uh, and um, it, it does, uh, I guess, sound great and it can achieve fantastic um, academic outcomes. But then um, I read your, um, your book, Hold On To Your Kids, and it then really became obvious that um, I guess that particular method is far from ideal for children's mental health, probably, because I guess children in that particular method are encouraged to be their own teachers and um, there's rest, less reliance on adults, I guess, as those main figures in, in, in the education. So um, I personally decided to, to homeschool our child, um, at least for now. Um, and I guess here in Australia, from a legal perspective, you have to choose. Like you can't do half-half. You have to either become a homeschooling parent or you send your kids into the education system and to school and um, uh, full-time. There's no really nothing in between. Um, I guess if we, if we assume no rules, no laws, and we just had to re reinvent the education system, what would it look like? for you uh how should it look like yes. how will it look like how should it look like well uh, first of all i i um uh, like to defend montessori a little bit i, I <laughs> uh, it uh I, I think the the first montessori was a is, is a developmental approach and that's always a great approach and it and uh, in its initial formulation maria montessori was in Incredible as an alpha leader, Italian doctor of her time, way ahead of her time, and uh, and she was like a like a pipe uh, a piper with a you know she could probably stood on her head and said a glass of water will help you read and it would have because of the power of attachment and and she was also uh, it was only above the underprivileged the under school that she was working at Montessori evolved to a much much different program, but it is developmental. What it didn't do is flesh out the reason things worked. And the reason things worked was not because of its necessary, its multi-sensory approach, which is very, very good, 
but because of the power of attachment that was demonstrated alive by Maria Montessori. And so it's those attachment characteristics that haven't found themselves into the formal Montessori approach. So that if you have, you link the developmental approach with a wonderful attachment-based approach, you've got the best of both worlds. Uh, so f first of all, I, I want to say it's, it's, it's it, but this is, this is similar with all schools. Very, most schools do not take into consideration the fact that the context for, for learning is the child's attachment to the adults responsible. That provides the context. And that play is the natural school. That was nature's first school. And so these are the elements that need to be brought into. And if there was an ideal kind of school, it would be where, where, uh, where student-teacher relationships were cultivated, uh, where relationships with family were preserved, and where play was brought in. I think uh, 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 Finland represents a good example. It scores very high in all educational at the top of the world usually. Play is huge in Finland. The culture of family is huge. These things are there that, that cultivate the kind of context in which, uh, in which learning unfolds. What is quite clear is it's not about the curriculum. It's not about the curriculum. And so the idea that if you go to the best private schools and you got the best curriculum in the world and the most teachers, no, no. You could get three PhDs from Harvard and not be emotionally mature. There is, there is no guarantee that it won't produce a very evil person because the more clever an individual, but if they don't have their feelings, they are cold-hearted and will take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. No amount of education is going to cure that. So in the end, it's not education that is the cure, it's relationship that is the cure. It's not the mind that is of the concern, it's the heart that is of concern. And in and if if there is any utopian school, it would be a place uh, where, uh, again, student-teacher relationships were for, preserving the relationships with the family, the child's family, and lots of emotional playgrounds that were brought back in, not outcome-based, but simply to be a place where the feelings could be restored. That would be the ideal uh, uh, school that you would want. And the private school has no, has no uh, dibs on the public school in getting there. Like there, there is nothing. In fact, the more, usually the more prestigious the school, the more they think it is about the teachers and the curriculum and the pedagogy and the technology, none of which have been shown to make, uh, make much difference at all. And so that's not where the answers lie. So the good news is, is you don't have to have a bunch of money to do this. What you have to do is have the insight. And, uh, you know, even public schools without much funding can actually make headway this way uh, because it's more insight than it is uh, of expensive programs that will, will get you there. Uh, and what's your view also on, um, I guess, that big debate around homeschooling versus um, versus um, school? Which one's better, or does it kind of depend on? on well, the, the 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 less separation children face, always the better. 
And so, because separation is a great threat, that's what makes us frustrated, makes us alarmed, and so on. Uh, but if school was later rather than earlier, if we had, like in, in Finland, again, you don't have to go to school until you're nine years of age. Uh, if, if school is later than sooner, if, if there is time to develop the relationship so you can hold on to your parents when apart, if there is great care to cultivate the, the, the attachments to the teachers as a continuation of the village, uh, it's, it's not... It's, it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. It's how we do it. And, uh, you know, if not everybody would have the means to home educate, this is very few people who have exactly. the ability to do so in today's world. And, and to hold that up as the ideal would put most parents, it's, it's, it's not, they, both parents have to work these days simply to pay the rent or to have a place to live. You know, that's, a school has become the way that enables parents to make a living. Uh, but it's the way we do it. It's the way we do it. Now, in home education, if the child ends up losing a mother in the equation, because a mother gets so anxious about being a teacher, which happened during this pandemic for a lot of kids, is that they, you know the the parents were so the mother was so concerned about uh, adding the role of teaching that they forgot that they were a mother, and a mother is the most important role in the universe. You know, the, the child needs to be invited to exist in their presence, uh, whether or not they do good at math or not. And so the school has to be secondary to the relationship. Well, the problem is, if the child loses the nurturing parent, whether that parent is mom or dad, it doesn't matter. But if they lose the nurturing parent in this context, the one that is home base for them, then they lose. Home education means they lose as well. So it's not going to school or staying home. It's how we do it. And how we do it, a child should face as little separation as possible. Uh, they should be attached to those who are responsible for them. And again, as I say, we should be bringing emotional playgrounds uh, into their life in ritual, in all kinds of ways to, to help them, uh, their feelings uh, get their feelings back after times of stress so it's more around like having a village but also a lot of play and yes. safety yes. and emotions in in, yeah. in all their child's key relationships and absolutely yeah and kate now also in our podcast we've been interviewing various speakers about this new future of how how we will live and work um and there's so many news stories now um uh about work now being increasingly remote, which allows for the workplaces to become decentralized. And many architects now predict that uh, um, we might be moving back into the more of this village life. Um, and the central business districts, like I live in Sydney, and so many people have to travel from far away into the city, into mm. this one central point. Um, I guess, and uh, there's a lot of predictions from the architects and so on. Uh, about uh, life becoming more of a bit of a village. So there's um, uh, more new co-working hubs and uh, and so on. So, and uh, Kate and I have had a lot of discussions about it and we both feel that it'll lead into this merging of work and life. Um, and uh, of course, it, this could mean that caring for children and maybe like the elderly or the disabled can become part of the um, equation of this whole change in how we live and work 
Um, so rather than I guess institutionalizing sometimes members of our society who are not income producing, um, or such as like very young children and the elderly, we could merge somehow their care into our work lives. Um, and there could be lots of solutions probably for how to do this, but um, do you think this uh, decentralization and remoteness of work can make a big difference to children? I, I think it would be a, a wonderful antidote to urbanization. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it would be a welcome antidote. Again, many, many children are thriving at this time and have thrived. It, it was just their dream come true. You know, when, when it is a time when they're camping with their parents and all in one place and everything is together, you know, it's just like, ah, you know. They, that uh, that my grandsons are thriving in this in in, in this kind of uh, uh, situation. Uh, so the uh, uh, if it could be that we had multi generational places, we'd have the resources to take care of our children. We would take care of the elderly. They would help us with their children. Many good things would be from from being able to live in the context of a village to rediscovering our village, something that cannot be done when you live in a high-rise apartment in the middle of the city or when you have to spend two hours commuting to work and back every day, it just can't be done. So there's many, many positive things. But our houses, our places, our dwelling places are not set up for being able to work from home. There's very, very few of us. And so there is something that we will have to learn to do is one of the worst case scenarios that we have learned in development is when, when a, a, a parent is close but not accessible, uh, especially for young children, when they can be seen but mom or dad is emotionally accessible, their mind is preoccupied someplace and so on. So being able to figure out how to be able to give very clear signals and provide a sense of continuity when you're having to be in a meeting and you know, on, a, on a call, if you're able to work from home, you, that really means that your child needs to know when you're there, when you're not, there needs to be something to bridge the time when you are. These are going to be, this is going to be quite a learning curve for a lot of parents about how to, how, how to do this. Because ideally, when we come home from work, you know, we take our hat off, so to speak, uh, and we enter in. And I remember when I came home from work, I came in that door and I was dead. You know, and so one of the big things when I started to work from home, uh, and this was way back, but when I started to do more work from home because I did more lectures, more theories, all, I mean, all more presentations all the way from world, uh, around the world, and I did most of that preparation from home, I had to figure out a whole new way of being a dad and a, a new way of being able to do this. So I think it's wonderful that we would... Uh, uh, that there would be a bit of reverse migration. I think there it gives the opportunity for more affordability for the kinds of dwellings that we can help take care of those who once took care of us and they can help us to care for children. I think it's wonderful. I think that children would have more togetherness. This, this, is, this, is, uh, this will be, I think, one of the best uh, benefits out of this. But I think it, we're going to have to do a little bit of work and a thinking about how to, how to do this uh, so that we are not constantly at work in our heads and forget that we have parenting to do. I, th I think this simultaneously showed the potential 
of all of this, but also how there is a lot of more work to be done and, and seeing mm. that kind of, you know, families feeling re reconnected, but then parents feeling super overwhelmed with having to take care of kids because you don't have that proper setup. So it's like, it's really interesting time for this right now. Yes. yes. And I hope we make the right choice about because we have, you know, it's like anything's possible right now. And, yes. Well, you know. <laughs> what we need to do is make a lot of room for our own sadness. Because sadness is the feeling responsible for adapting. It enables us to let go of what we can no longer hold on to, to let go of things that can no longer work for us. And we can't do it just through problem solving. It is through that sadness. It's the feeling that allows us to actually let go. And it gives us the resilience. It occurs to us that we can handle things not working just like they have or just like we, you know, getting our way. And then we become, uh, we, we can, uh, can walk our way through the maze to find out what works. So opening ourselves up to this, uh, whether it is whatever the emotional playground that is there, is the most important thing to walk us all the way through to the other side. Uh, so that we can remain, of course, what is close to my heart is being the parents our children need, that we can we can be what they need, providing them the conditions uh, with the conditions that are conducive to the unfolding of their full potential so that they can become fully human and humane. Thank you. Um, Probably, um, should we go to our final question? Okay. <laughs> so to wrap things up a bit, um, what do you, do you have three tips for parents um, in these current stressful times? Um, we've had a lot of schools closed down here and then they've reopened again and it's having a huge mental toll on parents. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's really hard for a lot of parents right now. So do you kind of like a top three tips for parents globally that they can be, sounds like feeling and is, is a big one of those. You got it. You got <laughs> it. And, and, and what you need to do, though, is that uh, like there's so many problems to solve, right? And problems to solve, you want to get the right outcome. And you've, you've got to do this. So the thing is, is that when culture was strong, culture preserved those times when we didn't solve problems, when we just had time for play, uh, you know, time for our music, time to read books, time to read stories, time to view those things. It's really important during this time to find the spaces and the places for feelings to bounce back. Resilience is to bounce back and what needs to bounce back is the feelings need to bounce back. So we need to build them into our week rituals, into if ideally into the day, a little bit of time for feelings to bounce back when we're not trying to solve yet another problem, not trying to figure out something else because it's those feelings that bounce back. So I would say, you know, the, the, the three tips are feelings, feelings, feelings. <laughs> and what about them is make play dates for yourself. You know, for your emotions to come out and play where it doesn't count for real. Uh, that was key to emotional health and well-being 2,500 years ago. The ancient Greeks discovered this and scientists have rediscovered this today. So yes, we can do this. We have adapted to a lot more than this as humans. And we've had to all through the years we've had a pretty good go of it the last 70 years you know generally most of us in, in most of where we are I this has been the rule of the day for you know long time before is there was always a new ward on adapt adaptation you had to migrate to a new place and, and a lot of people are doing that now too I don't mean to 
you know, we're not all uh, Canada and Australia, New Zealand. Uh, here, there's there's a lot of upheaval all over the place. But but the way to do this is is uh, that there needs to be that time, that place, that space, whether it's a safe relationship or it's the emotional playground, where it's not about problem solving, it's not about making headway. It's just letting your feelings bounce back. And, uh, and the more you can uh, allow uh, sadness to be collected and make room for that, the grounded, more grounded you will be, uh, the, the uh, less irritable you will be, the less impatient you will be, the less alarmed you will be. And so that, that does that do it? Does that yeah, that, that, that makes me feel so happy to hear that this <laughs> okay. is feelings yeah. and play. Like that, yeah. that just makes my heart sing. <laughs> Good. Absolutely. Same Good. here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, um, Gordon. And, and um, I guess if people want to find you, um, how can they, um, can they get in touch with you? Or um, you've, you've also got quite a few um, online courses, parenting courses. Um, I've, I've met uh, your co-author, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, here in Australia a couple of years ago. Ah. He was on a trauma conference. I've attended yes, that. That yes, was fantastic. Yes. And he said, oh, first of all, Dr. Dr. Gordon Newfield should be here next time. There's a conference. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and second, um, yeah. he said that the courses that you've got for parents are the best in the world. Like mm. They are fantastic. Um, well, the, the best way is just, uh, it, it's pretty hard to find me personally. Uh, but the, the best the the best way to go is just to newfeldinstitute.org, and uh, if if there is a question, if there is something there, I've got wonderful faculty who respond and so on. And like uh, like you said, I've got more than twenty five courses there. Lots of free resources now uh, for uh, if, uh, for d during the pandemic. Uh, lots of free resources in terms of parenting through the pandemic and so on. So at newfeltinstitute.org. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Um, such a hopeful and positive conversation. Um, and I'm really excited to share with everybody. So well, thank you. Thank yeah. you for the invitation. It's been my pleasure. I think so much, so much message that people need to hear right now. So oh, good. Thank you. Um, so if you thank want you. to find out more about this podcast or get in touch with, uh, with me or, or the other Kate, <laughs> you can head to creatinganewfuture.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps us to get the word out there about the new future. Mm -hmm.